With the third quarter of 2023 wrapped up, TSP returns did not look quite as solid as they did last time. To get a sense of what that means and what investors should consider, Federal Drive host Tom Temin got an update from certified financial planner Art Stein. And Arthur, what looked like a good market in the earlier part of the year seems to have slipped a little bit in the third quarter just concluded for the TSP returns. Yeah, for the stock funds, Tom, it was, you know, third quarter was bad. All three of the TSP stock funds declined three to five percent, which is, you know, a lot for just a three month period. But over longer periods of time, of course, we still have very mixed performance. But year to date, the stock funds have been good. They're positive, have very good returns. If you want to look since January of 2022, then the stock funds are negative. But since January 2020, which to me is the COVID period, you know, it was January starts out before COVID hit the United States and infected us financially, economically, and of course, personally. But the C funds up 40% since then, the S fund 19%, the I fund 10%. So in that very tumultuous period, stocks have done well. Now, the problem has been the bond fund, the F fund. Not the G fund, which is short-term bonds, but the F fund, uh, which is corporate and government bonds, is negative over all those periods. Like, it's down 9% since January of 2020. And, of course, that is probably the worst bond market performance maybe ever, you know, to have bonds be negative. They're negative this year, then they've had negative returns three years in a row. I think that I'm correct in saying that that is unprecedented. It never happened before. But government bonds are one thing. Corporate bonds are something else entirely, in a sense. But we're not talking, remember, about the G fund, which is all short-term government bonds. And really, Tom, it's more like a savings account, you know, because even short-term government bonds normally in the private sector fluctuate in value, but the G fund does not. The F fund does. It's down because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. But those bonds, you know, even the corporate bonds, it doesn't mean they're not going to pay off. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're not paying interest, which they continue to do. And as the price of the bonds goes down, the dollar amount of the interest does not go down. So they become quite an attractive investment. So right now, the interest being paid by the bonds in the F fund is about 3% of the total value of the F fund. It's what we call a 3% yield. And it means that people who are buying the F fund now, you know, are getting a very good return for something that has a potential to increase in value quite a bit if interest rates stabilize and especially if interest rates go down. So this is the kind of problem that all investors have, which is, gee, stocks have historically the best return, but they're very volatile. They go up and down. And now bonds, which historically are much less volatile, which tend to not go down very much and certainly not for very long periods of time, all of a sudden, you know, they're not doing as well. To me, that's the kind of time when you want to be investing in these investments. Yeah. So to deal with the volatility, in some ways, it's the eternal lesson. You have to balance cash, bonds, and stocks, right? And nothing essentially Absolutely. new here. 
So, you know, since January of 2020, as I mentioned, the F fund, the intermediate term bond fund is down 9%. Well, a lot of people will look towards the G fund, which is up 9% over the same period. And, you know, that looks pretty good. But I would also point out that inflation over that same time period is up about 19%. So for people who invested in the G fund, they've lost a lot of purchasing power, even though the G fund is increasing in value. And that's not even taking into account taxes. So yeah, the G fund looks better than the F fund right now. But as a long-term investment, historically, when you factor in taxes and inflation, the purchasing power of the G fund has gone down quite a bit. And even the F fund has lost purchasing power. It's really only the stock funds, especially the C fund and even the S fund, that have done well enough to increase purchasing powers over that period of time for investors who are willing to put up with the fluctuations in value. We're speaking with certified financial planner Arthur Stein of Arthur Stein Financial. So then again, an eternal lesson is the sheer return raw number doesn't give you everything you need to know to decide whether for retirement you are doing the best for yourself financially. You have to take into account the tax rates, the yields, the inflation rate, and you know what historically has been the best long-term investment. But then you need to think about you know how much money you need to spend in the short term and in the long term. I mean, for someone who's a retiree, uh, you know if they're taking out. $50,000 a year to live on to supplement, say, their FERS annuity, having money in the G fund that they don't have to worry about, say, $100,000, two years worth of expenses, I mean, that would certainly make sense because you don't want to have to worry about how you're going to get money out for those short-term needs. But for your long-term needs, someone retires at 65, they could easily live 30 years in retirement. So they also need to think about, well, where am I going to get the money 10 years from now and 20 years from now and 30 years from now that I need to supplement my FERS annuity and Social Security, of course. If that money's been invested in the G fund, the purchasing power would have declined dramatically. If it was invested in stocks, you know, based upon historical performance, they have a very good chance of having seen an increase in purchasing power. Right. So then your overall advice for people that are worried about all of this volatility and, you know, interest rates, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, there are issues in the world, too, that could be affecting stocks and bonds and, you know, investor confidence and so forth. What should people be doing now? Well, I think, you know, if you're working, you should be continuing to invest. And if you're worried about, say, the bond markets being down or the future of the economy, Maybe continue to work a few more years than you planned on. I mean, people don't mention it, but one of the great advantages of working for the government is there's no forced retirement for most positions. There is, I realize, for some positions, but not for most positions. But you also need to think about what is a good long-term investment. And, you know, I see people who panic and they pull all their money out of the stock funds and stick it all into the G fund and then just leave it there forever and then do another mistake, which is that their biweekly investments all go into the G fund too. 
well, don't do that. You can be much more aggressive with your biweekly investments than your current allocation. And if you are investing like that biweekly and the markets go down, that's a good thing for you because you're buying. And of course, you're just putting in a much smaller amount of money every two weeks. So, you know, if that declines, I mean, you're just much better off. But being too conservative, having too high a percentage of your investments in either or both of the bond funds really makes it much harder to generate the amount of assets that many of us are going to need for retirement. Certified financial planner Art Stein will post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, 
I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um... This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
and it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? 
So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.